Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dynasty. It's a word that tends to be associated with men in 16th century England. Indeed, if I name a dynasty, I suspect it will be men whose names or images come to mind. Try it now. The Percys, the Dudleys, the De Veres, the De La Pauls. But who were the women in 16th century dynasties? And what role did they play within these powerful families? These questions represent a new area of study for historians. Traditional interpretations suggested that women were only domestic, private, apolitical beings. Nonsense, say the latest generation of historians. More recently, historians like today's guests recognise that tending to the family and the domestic sphere in practice meant managing friendships, networks, marriage, patronage, inheritance, lineage, which are all very political, dynastic activities indeed. Of course, aristocratic women also operated at court as well. So today we're going to hear about one dynastic family in particular, the Howards. Perhaps its most famous female member was Queen Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife. But today we'll learn about Catherine's female family. Any woman who had the Howard name by birth or marriage between 1485 and 1558. Did these women share in and propagate a dynastic identity? Did they have the agency to demonstrate identities of their own? And can we find that in the sources? To tell us about the lives of the Howard women, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Nicola Clark, Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at the University of Chichester. She's the author of Gender, Family and Politics, The Howard Women, 1485 to 1558, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Nicola is fascinated by women's dynastic and political roles and is currently writing The Waiting Game, The Women Who Served the Six Wives of Henry VIII, which is due for publication in 2023. Dr. Clark, Nicola, it is an absolute joy to welcome you to not just the Tudors. I hope this is the first of lots of conversations about all sorts of things. But today we're going to be talking about one of the most famous families in the Tudor period, the Howards, but perhaps about some people who are less well known. Can you remind people who the Howards were and why you think we need to particularly focus on the women in the family? The Howards were, and still are, Dukes of Norfolk, which meant that in the pre-modern period they were the premier peers of England. They're second only to the royal family. So in the Tudor period, everywhere you look, there's a Howard. The men are Lord Treasurers of England, Earl Marshal, Lord Admiral... They're in service at court. They're on the front line of all the big military engagements. And there are two Howard women who sat on England's throne as Henry VIII's second and fifth wives. So Anne Boleyn, whose mother was a Howard, and her first cousin Catherine Howard. But aside from those two queens, what we've got, the existing narrative, has always prioritised the men. And yet there were so many Howard women around at the same time doing important things. 
So to a degree, what I was doing with this was recovery history, putting women back into an existing narrative and then standing back to see if that makes that narrative look any different. And almost immediately the answer was, yeah, actually it does make it look quite a lot different. We have a tendency to assume that dynasties like the Howards are all acting like one big coherent political collective. They're all gunning for the same goals. But actually, that's not what I found at all. Sometimes they did look like that. Sometimes they did act like that. And sometimes they wanted to project that image and make you think that's what they were doing. And it was looking at the women that really made that clear. And that's why it was so important to spotlight them. So how did you go about doing it? How did you find these Howard women? What sources did you use? And were they easy or difficult to find? A bit of both. So this was my PhD project originally. And then it was the subject of my first book. And even now, these girls won't leave me alone. So early on, I knew that I wanted to research women at court at around that kind of time. I spent my teenage years reading history books and screaming at the pages, where are all the girls? So it was always going to head that way. But I didn't initially know it would be the Howards. But the more I read, the more I realised that they just were absolutely everywhere. So then I sat down and I drew on a massive sheet of paper a huge family tree of the Howard dynasty across the Tudor period. Then I put a red dot next to everyone who got executed for treason. And I sat back and thought, huh, I feel like this is a thing. So I pursued that. I took some of those women and I started to try to follow them. But researching women is, to be honest, a pain in the neck. The problem is that in England at this time, married women don't exist as legal individuals. They are under coverture, so they're literally covered by their husband's legal status. They exist only as chattels that belong to him. So that means they can't officially own their own property, they can't pursue a lawsuit or make a will, and do so many of the things that leave a mark on the historical record. Those are the kinds of records that were considered important enough to be preserved. So then we're having to work against that all of the time in order to get anywhere near even elite women. So there are some ways around this. Widows could do all of those things. So if you've got widows in your research project, yeah, hey, that's easier. Some of these girls were widowed. I did a lot of searching backwards. So looking for the men around those female individuals and then hoping that she would crop up somewhere within the actual document even if not the description because that's another problem historically a lot of archive catalogues a lot of indexes a lot of calendars of documents were made by men who really weren't interested in women at all so it was quite common to find that the calendar entry for say a letter that was written by one of my girls might just be a few lines long but then the original letter itself might be several pages or that it hasn't been calendared at all because it wasn't considered yep. to be significant. It's trivial, it's women's stuff. Absolutely. And if we're lucky, it was kept, just not calendared. But then you've still got to actually go there and dig through things to find what's there. Digitisation of sources has really opened this up, I think. So state papers online, for instance, has made stuff a lot easier. But even then, there's a problem even with women's names because women change families as they marry. So the same woman might be known by several different names at different points in her life. It's not always the most current name, either, if a previous marriage is higher status. And even titles make a problem, because you can have more than one Duchess of Norfolk. There are two across a lot of my period, the widow of the previous Duke and the wife of the current Duke. And contemporaries didn't always differentiate between them very clearly. So there's like a whole extra degree of contextualisation. And often it's, I hate to say it's a hunch, but it often is a kind of hunch, but a well-informed hunch after a lot of years of working with these records and these individuals. You've got to keep that in the back of your mind as you're reading the document. For the Howard women, I found a lot of the time that I actually wasn't looking at 
super niche sources hidden in mysterious places. I did do some research in local record offices and in Arundel Castle, that's amazing. That is still the Howard family seat. The archive is tucked away in a turret. But mostly what I was doing was taking existing collections of documents, the ones we know really well, like the state papers, legal records, ambassadorial reports, and just pulling out the girls. And you could create a whole new narrative that you wouldn't otherwise know was there. Pulling out the girls is a great name for that method. Um, so <laughs> tell me a bit about bonds that you found when you were doing that family tree between the Howard women in your research and the ways in which they could use those ties to advance their interests. Sure. So even if they weren't always getting on or acting as we might expect, those bonds were still really important in theory, even if not always in practice. So I looked mostly at two major branches of the family at this time, Thomas Howard II, Duke of Norfolk, his second wife Agnes Tilney, and his daughters, and then his son Thomas Howard III, Duke of Norfolk, who is Anne Boleyn's wicked uncle Norfolk, as characterised always, his wife Elizabeth Stafford, and his daughter, Mary Howard, Duchess of Richmond. And I found some quite different models of bonds between the women themselves. So Agnes Tilney, the older Duchess, was very close with her daughters. And you can see that in snippets of evidence that show that they visit her, they talk business with her, some of them live with her. Her second daughter, Catherine, who ended up as the Countess of Bridgewater, was particularly close to her mother, Agnes. She's the only one who's mentioned in her mother's will in 1545. And later on, she asks to be buried in her mother's tomb, which is quite unusual. And I think that's just really touching. And you can see Agnes working really hard for her female kin as well, most obviously by arranging marriages for them. So there's a point in 1529 where the Howards have secured the wardship of the young Earl of Derby and they want to marry him to a Howard girl. So the Duke of Norfolk marries the Earl of Derby to his own daughter, which is a great coup for the Howards financially. It gives them influence in a whole new area of the country. But then his daughter dies unexpectedly of plague, which must have been just really awful. But the family doesn't want to lose that lucrative marriage. And so they start discussing how they can keep it. And it's quite quickly decided that Agnes's youngest daughter will marry Darby instead. I can't prove that it's Agnes piping up and pushing her daughter Dorothy forward, but it is Agnes's name on all the documentation, which makes it quite likely that she's involved in that. And she also does things like taking some of her less exalted female relatives into her household as wards, helping to push them forward and progress their careers. So some of her Tilney relatives spend time in her household. And famously, her step-granddaughter, Catherine Howard, who later became queen, spent time in her household. Yes, she did indeed. And of course, that is supposed to be the place where she has her morals corrupted or whatever version of it you want to remember. Did some things she shouldn't have done. Yeah, and morality comes up a lot when we're thinking about women. Of the people you've mentioned, several of them experienced serious marital difficulties. Should we talk a bit about those women who were in a dynasty because of their marriage, but actually in practice was often in crisis? Absolutely, yeah. I found quite a high rate of, I want to say marital attrition. That's probably not quite right because they don't all end up actually separated. That was surprisingly difficult to do during this period. But there are several of them who have some quite serious marital problems. So Elizabeth, Duchess of Norfolk, who I mentioned briefly above, the wife of the third duke, is one of them. She was married to Thomas Howard in the 1510s. She's about 20 years younger than he is. And she's in her mid to late teens when that happens. And she thinks he chose her for love. 
We know this because she wrote a long series of complaining letters to Thomas Cromwell a bit later on, in which she rehearsed much of her married life. And she says, he chose me for love, and I brought all this money with him, and I've given him five children, of which three lived to adulthood. What more does he want? The reason she's so annoyed is because Norfolk took a woman called Bess Holland, who lived and worked in his household, and usually aristocratic women put up and shut up when this happened. Elizabeth, not at all willing to do that by the sounds of it. So she kicks off, essentially, and I think numerous times. We don't know all of the occasions this happens. Her relatives are sent to mediate between the married couple. Norfolk says to her brother, please take her into your household. He says, no way, because she keeps talking so wildly. He says, her wild language will damage my own reputation. So she has no one on her side here. And that's not super surprising because by contemporary standards, it is Elizabeth who's in the wrong by not accepting what her husband is doing. But because her father is dead and her brother is a little bit useless and of lower rank than her husband, she has a problem. So eventually Norfolk, in response to some kind of last straw event, we don't know what this was, he rode all night from London to Kenninghall. He locked her up in a chamber, took away her jewels and her clothes, so the signs of her position, and then took her to a house in Redbourne in Hertfordshire and left her there nominally under a form of house arrest with a much smaller income, a much smaller household. And then at some point asked her if she'd be divorced. And she sent him packing and said, what do you think I am? I'm not daft. And considering that this is also the time of the king's great matter when he's trying to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, I think it doesn't take a genius to work out where Norfolk is getting this idea from. Elizabeth is also in service with Catherine of Aragon, or has been, and is very loyal to her. So it's an interesting situation because it's as though the king's marriage is being played out lower down the social scale. The two never do reconcile. Elizabeth writes many letters to Thomas Cromwell in which she complains of his treatment of her. She claims domestic violence. She says that Norfolk ordered the women of the household to bind her and pinnacle her and sit on her breast until she spat blood, which is a really visceral image. And it's very difficult to prove or disprove when it's one word against another. We know Norfolk's an unpleasant character. Elizabeth doesn't sound like an easy individual either. But it's a miserable situation, I think, and it never is fully resolved. So yeah, that's one, one lot of serious marital problems. But there's more. There's another girl who is married to the Earl of Oxford. That doesn't go very well because he won't sleep with her and get an heir because his cousin is his heir. His cousin is much older than him and would like to inherit the estate, please. So his cousin is sowing discord between the pair. And poor Anne, her name is Anne, is trying to sort out the household management and all the other things she's trying to do. And he won't let her do what she's supposed to do. She writes to Cardinal Wolsey and gets him involved. Fortunately, perhaps for everyone in the end, the Earl of Oxford dies at quite a young age. The fact that Anne never remarries despite being quite young, just suggests to me that her experience was not a good one. This is entirely speculative, but do you think that there's a hint that the Earl of Oxford was not interested in women? It's possible. There is no direct hint of that in any of the surviving documentation, so I think it would probably be impossible to say, but equally you can't say that's not the case. It's not something that's discussed or not discussed in words that we would recognise as pertaining to that. It's entirely possible she's in despair and they don't have any children, so who knows? The last instance of terrible marriages actually does seem to have ended in a divorce, which is quite unusual for this point. And that was Anne's sister, Catherine, who later was the Countess of Bridgewater. This was her second marriage to Henry Daubney, who was the son of Giles Daubney, who built Hampton Court Palace originally, if that helps. 
It's not clear quite how or why this marriage took place. It was probably arranged. Catherine has some rebellious qualities, shall we say. Henry Daubeny and she do not seem to have got on very well, and she writes quite a kind of desperate letter to Thomas Cromwell in 1535 that says, burn this letter when I'm done with it. My husband's enemies are telling you all sorts of things at court, and I've got no money, and I can't do anything, and she's clearly in fear. What of is difficult to tell. I have scoured many records in many places to find whether they actually got a church court divorce, because the only way to separate is either to get an annulment which says that the marriage never happened which is what Henry VIII wanted or you can get a separation from bed and board from a church court which means you remain nominally married but you can live separately you just cannot remarry while your spouse is still alive that's hard to get because a church court is so much more invested in keeping people together than splitting them up it is possible unfortunately for aristocracy of Catherine's level they might well have used a legal court called the court of arches which is like the top layer of ecclesiastical court. The records for that burned in the 17th or 18th century, so we basically haven't got them. I haven't got a record anywhere else, but there is a chancery legal case later on about a piece of land that belonged to her that describes her as the now divorced wife of Henry Daubeny, which suggests to me a separation of some sort has occurred and is clearly being legally recognised probably mediated by Thomas Cromwell. Here's another lacuna. Thomas Wolsey and Thomas Cromwell as marital advisors to the aristocracy. My goodness, the number of marriages they have to get involved in to mediate between spouses is extraordinary. All three of these. So yes, she does separate from her husband. And yeah, it's really interesting that there would be three women at around the same sort of time in the same family, all having some quite serious marital problems. I think it shows as well that family identity was important. Both of the women born into the Howard family had at least some family assistance from other Howards in their situations. Elizabeth, the Duchess of Norfolk, Elizabeth Stafford, did not have any assistance from her natal family. They just left her to it. So without that, you're really out of hope for fixing a bad marriage. Now, there's a very interesting chapter in your book which thinks about material culture and how women use material culture to construct their dynasty. So could you give us an idea of how that worked and how it related to family identity? Sure, yeah. For elite people like this, stuff is really important. It's not just enough to be rich. You have to be visibly rich and show that you're rich. And everybody who walks into your house or sees you has to know it. So things like clothes and jewels, textiles, even the buildings themselves... And things like plate and stuff like that, that's all very important. And for the Howards and most elite families, a lot of this stuff is emblazoned with dynastic branding, we might call it. So on textiles, there would be family crests, letters of names, things like that. Objects can also be used to document marital history. So a woman might bring plate with her that has her natal family's coat of arms on it. And so in an inventory, you can then see which families have married into the Howards at what time, almost. It kind of charts all the family connections. Jewellery sometimes is left in wills and passed down generations. There's a super interesting instance of that. In the early 17th century, a Howard woman known as the Double Duchess, because she was the Duchess of two places at once, she left, I think he's her nephew, but he's the heir to the current big Howard title, which I think isn't Duke of Norfolk then, but whatever it was. She left him a necklace that was said to have belonged to Queen Catherine Howard almost a 100 years earlier. And I thought that was super interesting because 
you would expect the family not to want to remember that they'd had a queen executed for treason. But apparently, at that distance, the important thing was not that she'd been executed, but that she'd been queen. And they were holding on to that connection materially, which I thought was great. There's some quite poignant stuff as well. So Elizabeth Stafford, the Duchess of Norfolk, with the miserable marriage, when Norfolk rode all night and locked her up in a room and then took her to Hertfordshire, a lot of her belongings were left behind and then later on the house at Kenning Hall in Suffolk was inventoried and we can see them we can see what was left behind and quite poignantly in a coffer in the nursery there was a bedspread essentially that was not yet finished and there were lots and lots of letters of T for Thomas and E for Elizabeth so she was clearly making this bedspread for their kind of state bed probably at the time that their marriage fell apart how much of that she's doing for show and how much it has any kind of real emotional feeling behind it is impossible to know but it's still quite poignant to think that all of that kind of sense of identity was taken away from her and you also talk about her household books as well it's the same elizabeth who's wife of the third duke of norfolk what do they tell us about her role in the dynasty the kitchen accounts for her household during the 1520s, so earlier on when things were supposedly fine. And for one of those, at least, the Duke was away. So she is acting as hostess of the household all by herself. And because they're kitchen accounts, they give us not only what is being eaten, but they also tell you who is showing up to meals. So you can see all of the family's visitors. God bless the accountant or the scribe or the officer who thought this was important to record, because it really gives you a picture of their whole social networks during that year, which is fab. So when Elizabeth is managing the household by herself, you can see that, for instance, she hosts a family celebration at one point, And we think it's for a betrothal of her half-sister by marriage, who is much younger than she, has just been betrothed to the Earl of Sussex. So the other half of the family, her father-in-law, her mother-in-law, all come to dinner in her chamber and stay overnight, which must have been quite nerve-wracking for her, because in essence, as the hostess of the household, her household management is on show here, and if it's lacking, they're going to notice. So there's that going on. She hosts a local wedding among some servants as well at some point. And there's streams of local gentry visitors, fewer when she's there by herself, because there's, in many ways, there's less point in talking to her because she doesn't have the same legal pull as her husband does locally. But yeah, she offers hospitality on quite a big scale while he's away. All this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I'll be asking, who really were the Vikings? How did they become so successful in spreading across northern Europe and beyond from the late 8th to the 11th centuries? What are the stories we tell about them and what legacy did they leave behind for us today? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and throughout September I'll be examining the big questions about the Vikings with a host of experts and answering all of your burning questions about the Viking Age as well. So, for everything you always wanted to know about the Vikings, subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I know this is slightly shading into the work of your latest book, but let's talk a bit about the Howard women at court. What did it mean to be a female courtier in England at this time? And was there a conflict between a woman's role at court and her role in her family? So to be a female courtier in England at this time, yeah, this is what I've been writing about. I think it, actually it's quite hard work. I think you need a really diverse skill set to be a successful courtier at this point. You're on all the time, you're performing all the time, so it must have been exhausting for a start. And you've got to know how to converse appropriately with all different sorts of people, nationalities, so any language skills, also helpful. You need to know when to speak and when not to speak and what not to say to whom. You need to know who everybody is as well, which in a court of 600 people is probably tricky. You need to be able to dance and hunt and ride. And I think there's probably a lot of staying up late and then getting up early just repeatedly without flagging. So it's a young person's game. So yeah, I think it is hard work to be a female courtier and you're walking a lot of tightropes. So there's a book that was published in Italy at this time, translated into English later. We can't prove Henry VIII himself read it, but some people who could read Italian may well have done. It's by Baldassare Castiglione called The Book of the Courtier. And it lays out in a kind of series of contrived conversations how to be a good courtier. And what he says about women is super interesting because he wants them to be beautiful, obviously, but makeup, not so much. And she should be beautiful and take care with her appearance, but not too much. She shouldn't look like she's put too much effort in. So I think it's a tough job, but it is a job that a lot of people want because when governance is personal, the personality of the monarch affects decisions that are made. So if you want to achieve your goals as an aristocrat, ideally you need to be near him. And if you personally can't be near him, you want some family members near him. And if not near him, near the queen, because she also has influence and she has influence on the king. So many Howard girls go through the queen's household at court. So between 1509 and 1529, 12 women related to the Howard dynasty held formal salaried positions in the Queen's household. And if there's usually only 20 women at a time in the Queen's household, 
quite a big proportion are related to the Howard, so they are very much a courtier family. There is also often a conflict between a woman's royal court and in her family, because if you are in service to the Queen, you take an oath of service, which essentially is an oath of loyalty. The exact wording doesn't survive for this period, but it's basically promising to be true and faithful and not to serve anybody else. And that's fine, but what if the Queen's interests conflict with your family's? What if your dad says, we need you to do this, but that doesn't serve the Queen's interests and you don't want to do it anyway? What do you do? You're being pulled in several directions all at once, all of the time. And I think that's the most difficult thing about being a female courtier. And it's not always clear what's in your family's interest either. So there's a few occasions where Howard women do things that turn out not so well. But you could say if they had turned out well, then that would have been fantastic for the family. So there's a great point, 1536, the year of awfulness for everybody, I think. During this year, Mary Howard, Duchess of Richmond, who is married to the king's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, she is very good friends with the king's niece, Margaret Douglas, who is also in court at that time. And over the previous, I don't know, six months or so, she has been encouraging Margaret Douglas in her infatuation with Mary's cousin, Thomas Howard. There's a million Thomas Howards. This one is one that didn't count as much as the others because he's a younger son. Bit of a Howard nobody. Doesn't get very far. But he does seem to make Margaret Douglas fall in love with him. And then they secretly contract marriage with Mary Howard's connivance. And if that had turned out well, fab, you've got another royal marriage in the Howard family. Who wouldn't want that? That's great. Unfortunately, this is right after Anne Boleyn has been executed, so the succession is about to change. Princesses Mary and Elizabeth are now illegitimate. That means that the king's niece Margaret Douglas's position is suddenly elevated, and now they find she's thrown herself away on a Howard nobody. It really doesn't go down very well at all. Thomas Howard ends up in the Tower of London, attainted for treason. Margaret Douglas is shipped off to Zion Abbey to sit in a corner and think about what she's done. Mary Howard gets away scot-free, but she really shouldn't have done because she has screwed up. The fact that she gets away with it, I think, is probably because her husband is the king's illegitimate son, who likewise might now be more important to the succession than we thought before, and it's bad form to execute your potential queen-in-waiting. In fact, he dies. But it turns out, just to add fuel to this kind of Howard bonfire, I wouldn't blame the king if he never wanted to see a Howard again after 1536. And yet... <laughs> and yet, as we know, he had another queen who was a Howard girl. And, of course, both Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard were in waiting to the previous queens when Henry noticed them. Those incidents, of course, are famous or infamous, but it's also remarkable to note that Howard women are, for example, agents in rebellion. Can we talk about them? So, yes, the rebellious Howard girl is uh, Catherine, who was married to Henry Daubeny. So this is not her first marriage. She was first married to a Welshman. She was married to Rhysap Griffith, who was the grandson of Sir Rhysap Thomas, who fought with Henry VII at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485 and helped him to win the English crown. So they are, as Welsh families go, for all that they are only knights, their importance is much higher than that. So it's not a bad match. She marries him, they seem to have a good marriage, but then things get a bit dicey. The crown is trying to take over Wales, essentially, or subdue it under English law instead of Welsh. Rhysab Griffith is not thrilled by this because the crown agent sent to do that really puts his back up, they don't get on. Catherine, his wife, involves herself in the fallout. So when her husband is arrested by the English crown agent, she 
writes a very desperate letter to Thomas Wolsey and says, please help me. But at the same time, she is sending out letters to all the local men saying, your lord is under arrest, turn up with knives and let's kill everybody. And they do show up and there is an altercation and people get hurt and it's all very problematic. And eventually her first husband is hauled off to London under arrest and then executed for treason. And it's a trumped up charge. They claim that he's trying to take over the throne with the help of the King of Scots, which so far as we can tell is rubbish. But the Spanish ambassador thinks that what really happened is that Catherine and Rhys were speaking against Anne Boleyn and that that went down poorly and that contributed to his treason charge and his execution. And Catherine, having joined in, apparently at one point she also held siege to the crown agent in Wales. If she's not holding back here, she's definitely involved. And if that wasn't enough, that's in about 1530. Later on, in the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, when the north of England is very upset about the dissolution of the monasteries, about Thomas Cromwell, about local economic issues, and about Princess Mary not being in the succession anymore, there's a whole load of things going on. But they rise in rebellion, and a spy report from that time says that Lady Rees had sent a cartload of plate and a load of soldiers up there. In fact, that she'd taken them up there herself. Lady Rees was not her title then, but it's really the only person that it could be is Catherine. And that is super interesting, because the person in charge of suppressing the rebellion is her brother, the Duke of Norfolk. So she's playing a really risky game. You tentatively suggest that many of the Howard women's treason cases are responsible for changes to the treason law during Henry VIII's reign. And of course, that is true for Catherine Howard for whom the crime is invented in the act of condemning her. What other evidence is there for this? And why do you think this is significant for our understanding of women at this time? There is no other evidence that she did anything else. But to involve herself even to that level is quite a lot for a noble woman to have done, especially one who doesn't normally live in the north of England. And I think it's a real, actually, screw you to the government. You executed my husband. I'm going to help the rebels against you. She's not someone you'd want to meet in a dark alleyway at night, I think. It is necessarily speculative because there's just so many things going on that revolve around treason during this time that I think there's many things that go into this. But there is more treason legislation passed during the reign of Henry VIII than there had been for hundreds of years. Before that, it rested on a statute from 1352. But Henry VIII passes a whole new treason act, and that adds some new crimes into the definition of treason. So where before you needed to actively do something to be convicted of treason, now you just need to talk about it, and that's enough. And the general vibe of spoken words being treasonous is itself, I think you could see it, as quite a gendered thing. Society and men at large are very afraid of women and gossip at this time. Women and slander, women and gossip. They're scared of women sitting on their front porches and gossiping about the men in the village. So there's a degree to which, if you're now not even supposed to talk about things, maybe it will stop women doing so. And a lot of the people who are hauled up for saying things that now transgress this law are women. The woman who famously called Anne Boleyn a goggle-eyed whore, that's got under this new part of the Treason Act. It also contains a clause that made it treasonous to withdraw to a castle and maintain resistance there after you'd been summoned to appear before the king. And it's possible that could relate to what was going on in Wales with Risa Griffith and with Catherine, because that's more or less what she did. It was also treason for a subject of the English crown to take an oath to a foreign-born prince, which might be in response to this trumped-up charge of Griffith 
conspiring with the Scottish king. So the episode of Catherine's Welsh rebellion might have at least contributed to some of those changes at the law. And there's also a few bits and bobs where you think, gosh, if that had come into action just a little bit earlier, she'd have been in trouble. Mary Howard, for instance, not telling anybody that Margaret Douglas, as a royal agent, had married without permission. Technically, you're courting treason there by the new definitions. So again, she was lucky that it hadn't yet quite been enforced. So there's various things like that, that when you look, you think these could be contributing factors, perhaps. The other thing that's changing in the 16th century, of course, is religion. And the Howard family are generally described as religiously conservative. Is that true of the women as well as the men? Not as clearly as it is for the men. This is one of those things where the Howards tend to be described as a collective. And later on, being Roman Catholic and maintaining Catholicism in the face of a Protestant government became very important to Howard identity. And it is still, the Howard family still are Catholic. So I think it became convenient to write that back in history and assume that when religious change first began, that they were all immediately very strongly religiously conservative. That's also true of the third Duke of Norfolk, who is the family patriarch at that time. He does tend to be very conservative, albeit he will also put his loyalty to the king above religion, even if he doesn't like it. And it's often assumed, therefore, that the women of the family must have followed that lead, like they'd all had some meeting around a big table. But in fact, it does not work that way. And there are some Howard women who really were not conservative at all and one of those was his daughter which must have not been his favourite thing I would think his daughter Mary Howard who became Duchess of Richmond was married to the king's illegitimate son she became very evangelical in the 1540s she supports writers like John Bale she gives them money she is their patron essentially and this is super interesting given her father's beliefs once we get into the reign of Edward VI as well where things become more obviously evangelical slash protestant we start to see the word protestant she even goes a little bit further she is the patroness of the martyrologist John Fox who wrote his Acts and Monuments or Book of Martyrs about all the protestant martyrs who'd been burned he wrote the first draft of that in Mary's household. She was looking after her late brother's children, her nieces and nephews, and she appointed John Fox to be their tutor. Yeah, so it's a pretty clear religious statement, and it's pretty different from her father's. Interestingly, her father spends this whole time in the Tower of London under imprisonment. Otherwise, maybe this couldn't have happened. The first thing he does when he's released in 1553 is to sack Fox. And I just really wish I could have been a fly on the wall for that conversation between Mary and her father. Get this Protestant out of my house. But yeah, so she is very evangelical. She harbours John Bale as well when he comes back from exile in 1547. All sorts of things like that. Now, you just mentioned Norfolk's imprisonment. Norfolk, of course, was imprisoned in the end of 1546 when it was determined that Henry Howard, his son, Earl of Surrey, had been plotting to put his father... Norfolk on the throne in place of Edward or something like that. I mean, it's a slightly drummed up case. It's not really true. But that's the idea anyway. So Henry Howard is executed and Thomas, Duke of Norfolk, is saved by the bell because Henry VIII dies during the night and when he's supposed to be executed the next morning. Now, in this downfall, do we see Howard women playing a part? Absolutely, we do. Yes. And it's Mary Howard again, his daughter, who's really on the spot there. On the day that Norfolk is arrested, Mary is also in the house. This is at Kenninghall in Suffolk. 
the king's officers turn up to kick him out so they can inventory the house and then question the women. Mary is a very experienced courtier by now. She's pretty sharp. And I think she quite immediately takes stock of the situation. So while her sister-in-law and her father's mistress are weeping and wailing, she looks about her and goes, all right, let's figure this out, shall we? And she falls to her knees. And although she seemed sore, perplexed and fumbling and like to fall down, she fell to her knees and said she wouldn't hide anything from them. She will tell them everything. Unfortunately, what she actually told them hasn't survived. The depositions didn't survive. But they were seen by Henry VIII's first biographer, 17th century, Lord Herbert of Cherbury, who saw the depositions before they burned in the cotton fire. He didn't publish a direct transcription, but he did publish a kind of precy. So we have the key points of what she's supposed to have said. She seems to have understood quite quickly that what the government were trying to do here were to get her father. They wanted to execute Norfolk because he is the threat to an evangelical council during the minority of Edward VI, which I think everybody by this point could see was going to happen, was going to be the case. They don't want Norfolk in control. He's a religious conservative. They have used her brother, the Earl of Surrey, as the kind of means to this, because Surrey is a problem a lot of the time. He just doesn't behave like a sensible courtier should. He starts using royal arms, which... It's debatable whether or not he had the right to do it, but whether or not you have the right to do it, you don't start doing that in front of a paranoid king in the 1540s. You're asking for trouble. So he starts doing this, and then this causes this spurious reason that they're able to arrest Surrey and his father. So they ask Mary about this stuff. They ask her all kinds of things, and she answers very vaguely. They ask her about Surrey's coats of arms, and she says, oh, I think it was about this. And you think, okay, but for a noble woman at this time, they know exactly what arms they do and do not use. She would have known better. She's fobbing them off. There's also the matter that Surrey had made what might have been a joke. She had refused to marry Sir Thomas Seymour. He had agreed with her. He hadn't wanted her marrying a Seymour. He'd suggested, why don't you seduce the king? Become his mistress. You could be in the same place as Madame Guiton in France. And... The king is Mary's father-in-law, which makes it, by early modern standards, incest. So Mary is horrified, and she mentions this to the council. So she's trying to draw them away from the key issue, I think, and talk about things that are maybe not matters of treason. She gives them nothing on her father at all, nothing on the Duke of Norfolk. Everything that she says is about Surrey. So it seems that she had accepted that she probably couldn't save her brother, but she would try to save her father. She's often vilified for having given evidence that brought them down. People have misread this and thought that actually she was responsible for her brother's death. And that's not really clear at all in the surviving depositions. She's trying her best to keep everybody off the dangerous subjects and she's trying to protect them. And cynically, she has a good reason for doing so. She's a single widow and she's not super well off. So if her father's executed, she's also a little bit screwed. But none of the evidence that she's supposed to have provided was directly used to convict either of them. So yes, she's involved. She's right in the middle of it, but she does quite a good fobbing everybody off. And then she becomes the guardian of her brother's children after his execution and she keeps on writing to the council on her father's behalf during his imprisonment saying give him more money can i visit him will you let him out so yeah she does her duty so what you've been saying there and in fact what you've been saying throughout creates a very strong sense of now slightly overused phrase in academia but female agency and when we're thinking about women in the 16th century, and in this case, early modern aristocratic women, 
and their identities, it can be that a sort of crude definition of patriarchy is used that says it's about female submission. And actually, your work is part of a new wave of work that says, no, it's more complicated than that. (laughs) What else do you think needs to be done for us to appreciate the kind of kaleidoscopic identities that women had at this time? I think looking at family groups was really helpful and looking at perhaps more than just one woman at a time as well to get a broader picture of what's going on. Yeah, I would never suggest that it wasn't a patriarchal society because quite clearly it was. Women were not considered equal to men. But patriarchy wasn't just about relationships between women and men, but it's also about the male-dominated systems that made up society, things like the law and the royal court and the monarchy. And if gender relations are always oppositional, none of those things would have worked. Women would have been permanently working against the entirety, all of the structures of early modern society. And actually, there's plenty of evidence that men and women could be united in pursuit of shared goals, and that women could use some of those social structures to their benefit and find ways around them or through them or under them. But it's also true to say that, at least so far as the Howard women are concerned, they're not always in tune with patriarchy and with patriarchal goals. Several of them kick against that. They follow an alternative path. And I think it's quite heavily dependent on the state of individual relationships. So it's not that they're trying to change the system, but they're changing their immediate experience of the system, I think. And I think really what we need to do is to, rather than start from an assumption that families or that women within families all work collectively together all of the time, we should remove that assumption. Because yes, sometimes that does happen. But often it doesn't. And if you start to look at the different areas of experience, religion or politics or any of the rest of it, you do start to see perhaps where things diverge a little bit. So just to spin on what you just said, instead of saying it's men and women are always oppositional, we need to say sometimes they're appositional and we need to think about women and women being oppositional from time to time where we tend to assume proximity and shared purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful discussion about women in this time and introducing us to characters that people might not know but can find out more about by picking up a copy of your book which is called Gender, Family and Politics, The Howard Women and we're looking forward to your next book coming out next year. Fingers crossed. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you to my producer Rob Weinberg and researcher Esther Arnott And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.